In a moment, I'll say a few words, but I wanted to first invite maybe one or two people who'd like to to read what you wrote or part of it. And can we use the microphone? Okay. Sounds working. Okay. So we had Elizabeth. Uh, we got a lot of people. One. I'm just going to have time, maybe for one or two. I have Elizabeth raised her hand first, then Adrian, then Anne. I saw. Out of our this difficult time. A little closer, your mouth. Out of this difficult time, our task is to be informed, to be aware of where and when we can do something to take action to practice with the heart for all those who are the designated targets and for ourselves and all beings and to keep our values and live with them. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Adrian and then, and then Anne. Out of this difficult time, our task is to be kind, to be patient, to be together, to practice to wait till the time is right to act, to have hope, to be present to immigrants, people of color, young women and men, to practice, to commit to one issue wholeheartedly, to practice and to do all things wholeheartedly. Thank you. And, and then we'll do, you'll be the last one, okay? We'll do, we'll do four. Out of this difficult time, our task is to love each other and care for the planet. We must move forward together, indeed, to speak up and act to stop what is wrong, to build a greater foundation for the betterment of all people on the earth. Our path will become clear as we search our souls for how we each can best contribute. We will take ideas from each other, support each other's efforts, and act in harmony to create a better world. We must not wait for the perfect opportunity to act nor rest after we give a little to this end. We must persist for the good in the days and years to come with our very best, most constant effort. Anything less may not be enough to promote the healing that our people and the earth desperately need and rightly deserve. Thank you. The last one, in, and your name is? Sylvia. Sylvia. Oh, very good name for this morning. Out of this difficult time, our task is to take action to elect officials that try to do for the good of man and not for special interest. Out of this difficult time, our task is to take care of our planet. Each individual can make a difference if we hold ourselves accountable. We can make time to nurture ourselves and be one with nature, teach our loved ones to be respectful and honest with others and to pass it forward, to step out of ourselves and empathize with someone less fortunate, it goes a long way. To help our community as best we can with our God-given talents and abilities. To understand and educate ourselves to world events and to lead by example. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And it actually probably be a very good use of our time to read everyone's, have everyone's, <laughs> where everyone was interested. And uh, maybe we can have some more 
next week, we'll see. Um, and I, I had some things I wanted to share, and that could lead to a, a larger discussion. And uh, I probably will just say some of what I had prepared uh, because of time and wanting to have uh, time for discussion. So I'll have to see where we are and what the interest is. I may continue uh, some next week before Thanksgiving. So those of you who've heard me before know that uh, I like very much uh, a line from a Tibetan teacher named Shabkar who lived in the uh, uh, late 18th and early 19th century. And he had a wonderful statement which has really stuck with me, which is, let your life and practice be one. I think I mentioned that a few weeks ago in speaking, let your life and practice be one. And I think uh, our times are really calling for further maturity of our practice and I think further entry into the world, right? And I'll, I'll be talking about some elements of that, some of the challenges and some ways to, to work with that situation. Um, you, you, I think, also heard a, another Tibetan saying that I like a lot, when the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. But when difficulties arise, my faults are exposed. <laughs> right? Or another saying, turn all obstacles into the path of practice, right? And so there's a way in which I think these times are asking that. This, this is from... Uh, a teacher in the East Bay, some of you know, Zenju Earthland Manual. And she, she said this just a few days ago. Many of us have been practicing Buddhist teachings or walking a spiritual journey forever and preparing for every moment of our existence. We are ready and have been waiting for this time. Our rage, pain, and anger are to be exposed if only for us to transform and mature with it. In Buddhist practice, we say congratulations because now is the time we have been practicing for. No more just, just practicing the dance. We must now dance. And this is not a dress rehearsal. So I had some reflections first about the times, I think, that we've entered and then some about what a response of practice can be. I think which echoes, I think, what people have already said and what I imagine uh, others have written. Maybe, maybe like you, I knew that there would be some kind of time in which uh, kind of the bubble of normality would break. Right? I thought it would tend to be more ecological in origin, maybe like you. Like at a certain point, things would just be not normal, you know, in terms of the environment. And, you know, in a way, it would be harder just to keep on leading our daily lives, as many of us do, generally thinking that society, with all its problems, is more or less normal and developing, you know, and... It's not an emergency, right? Not a, not a big problem, right? Even though we know, uh, we knew it on the edges, yeah, I kind of know the, we're not really living in a sustainable way. At some point, 
um, something will get worse, right? You know, we can kind of know that intellectually, or we know that the, there, you know, maybe there's an economic bubble, and we know that the, you know, the, uh, you know, the extent of racism and other uh, forms of oppression um, could get worse, you know, and so forth. I thought that it would be more ecological in nature. For many of us, and it's not necessarily for all of us, it's been an election, I think, that has burst the bubble, right? And we, um, you know, and it might not have happened, right? It's possible that if the FBI director had not intervened in the way he did, the election would have been different, and we'd be still in normal, right? And we'd still, in a way, be in a bubble, and maybe we'd have that bursting of the bubble in three years for some reason, you know, economic or ecological or whatever, or in five years or seven years. We don't know, right? But I think the, the, you know, the sense of normality uh, in, in, the, in the meaning that I was giving, I think something's ended. You know, there's some... And again, it's, uh, you know, it's not always something we can feel viscerally. Um, and so I think we're entering into a very uncertain time. Right? It's a very uncertain time. There may be quite a bit of turmoil socially. I mean, there's already you know, something happening. You know, in, I was reading, being in Kentucky, reading about Oakland and Portland and so forth, a certain amount of turmoil, but it's, you know, in some sense, fairly minor. Right? And it's, uh, you know, it's possible. It's possible that, that we may be entering into considerable more uncertainty and even uh, uh, changes of a kind that we could not fathom, you know. And, um, you know, some of our larger systems are indeed vulnerable. We don't, we don't know what will happen. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, for example, uh, the president-elect decides to implement the Keystone XL pipeline I wouldn't be surprised to see civil disobedience, you know, in the hundreds of thousands or even more. And don't know what the reaction would be, you know. Could be violence, right? What ha- you know, could be, you know, these are, these, these are, this is possible, right? And we don't know, we don't know the way things will open up. We don't know what would happen if there is a kind of a clampdown on Black Lives Matter or something like that, right? possible. We don't know. You know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, and we don't know um, you know, we don't know what will happen with some with the you know, if uh, if they decide to pull out of the climate international climate talks, right? Again, there could be uh, very powerful responses and they might not be met well, you know, and what happens then, right? So we don't we don't know. Um, we don't know the way society will develop. You know, there's, you know, things are getting more more polarized. You know, and it's the possibility of something that could be very authoritarian and even, you know, what people would call neo-fascistic. You know, that's possible, right? We don't know. Um, you know. 
We also know that uh, for many of us, alternatives have been developing you know, that are more sus- based on sustainability, holistic view of human beings, mindfulness, compassion, and bringing that into all the institutions. And that's happening amazingly, right? Even, uh, I just want to let you know, this is not, it's not just California. One of the first persons I talked to once I got back to California last night talked about thoughts of secession. Um, but I can tell you, I was in Louisville, Kentucky the last five days, and the mayor of Louisville is implementing mindfulness in all the public schools. Right? So there are counter-movements that are happening. You know, they're implementing um, conflict work, conflict transformation in the schools. Right? There's, so there's a whole other kind of cultural development which is very different, right? which is very different and related to what we've talked about some you know, over the years, to mindfulness, compassion, empathy, skillful work with conflict. There's a whole different vision of a culture, which I think is, again, developing on, in local ways through schools, through families, through communities, and you know, is ready to be brought into a higher level. You know, I, I do see elections and so forth as a little bit more of the surface level and deep change happens at the cultural level and that's happening. That's happening. We just don't know how that's going to relate to the other forces, right? We don't know that. There's uncertainty. You know, one of my first um, thoughts after the election was all hands on deck. (laughs) I don't usually have, you know, uh, nautical meta- metaphors, but but there it was, all all hands on deck. So so we don't know. There you know there 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 are these different things happening. You know there's this, you know and uh, clearly, you know the, the positive developments that that many of you may uh, feel connected with are much more there with the younger generation, right? With younger people, so you know the, um, I think the you know I mean the younger people from my reading of the election results are pretty clearly going more in that latter direction, right? But still, the forces the forces are strong on both sides. During during my travels, I I gave uh, some talks which were not always directly related to the election, but I brought it in. I gave one talk in Asheville, North Carolina, which isn't a true representative, I was told, of North Carolina. It's a little bit more like Berkeley. Nonetheless, but then I gave talks also in Lexington, Kentucky, and Louisville, Kentucky. And again, what seems to be the dynamic is that, you know, Actually, the division now is less between states than it's between cities and rural areas. Many of you probably have read that analysis, right? So it's, anyway, there, there are changing dynamics. And um, I found people who had never really acted so much saying, now is the time. I want to really come forth. And so when we do so, we have these tools of our practice. And I want to 
spend the rest of the talk pretty briefly talking about uh, bringing forth our practice as giving us guides on how to respond, on how to be skillful. And then we can, then we can talk together. So, again, those of you who've heard me before know I've been quite influenced by um, actually having a friend who uh, was part of the, uh, initially the Vietnamese uh, student movement uh, during the 1960s, and later was a Buddhist monk and became a Buddhist teacher, was a senior sort of uh, student of Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, his name is uh, Thich Minh Duc. And we had a lot of conversations, and he wrote a, um, he wrote a PhD dissertation on the history of engaged Buddhism in Vietnam, more or less from the 1930s up till, you know, up through the 60s and 70s, particularly focusing on some very difficult years, which were 1963 to 65. Some of you may, may know some of that history. And uh, one thing I learned, which I really appreciated, is that um, most of that time, the Vietnamese felt called to shift somewhat the whole pillars of their practice. And for millennia, you know, in Mahayana tradition, I think it's also very much in uh, Theravada, one often spoke uh, of the Dharma as a bird that flew and had two wings, and they're the wings of wisdom and compassion, and this is how we fly. <laughs> this is how we, how we move. And the Vietnamese said... Of course, well, of course, the wisdom and compassion are, are great, you know, no problem. <laughs> but they said we also need courage, which, I, which is really the courage, particularly, I think they're meaning the courage to act. And so they talked about three core aspects, wisdom, compassion, and courage. You know, and I like to think it's also, you have the two wings of the bird, but then courage is the body. You know, you can't, you can't just focus on the wings, <laughs> right? And, of course, courage is related to the word for heart in French, cœur, you know, and so it has to do with the heart as well. So I was thinking of just naming the core elements of our practice and, and um, seeing how we implement them in these times. So, uh, you know, if we can start with mindfulness, which is simply, can I track what's going on in my experience? What are my emotions? Do I have difficult emotions occurring? Can I work with them with mindfulness and then also with other tools like compassion? But what are they? Are they, you know, are they difficult emotions? Um, some people probably, my, my initial response was shock. You know? And that stayed for a while. Right? And, maybe it, and I'm sure there are elements that are still there. You know, I actually, personally, I actually felt somewhat like after my mother died, you know, and it was like, you know, I go about some activities and I said, oh yeah, that happened. It was like that. It was somewhat like that for, for me, maybe, maybe for you, kind of, oh yeah, it's kind of like, like a loss. Again, I don't, I don't want to presume anything about this group and I want to have room for everyone. So I'm not presuming that people are, as it were, just on just voted for you know, one or two of the candidates, or one of the candidates, let's say. Um, 
And so can I be mindful of what's happening? Can I notice what's happening? So that, because mindfulness is like the doorway to being skillful. If you don't know what's happening, if you're caught in what's happening, it's hard to be skillful. So can we implement mindfulness? Can we be with what's there? Particularly with, with difficult emotions. What are the difficult emotions? What are my thoughts doing? This is a particular time to watch uh, negative scenarios and be careful with them, right? And mindfulness helps there. You know, we, teach, we talk a lot about um, not shooting the second arrow, which, you know, in ordinary English means not taking something difficult and making it worse with a negative scenario that we get caught in, right? Being really careful for the thoughts that you tell yourself about what's true, you know? And I think, you know, like I said, I think there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in our time. And we don't know, you know. There are also some obvious potentials, obvious possibilities. So what's going on? Am I, am I caught in, in this emotion where I'm having negative scenarios occur? Really crucial to have that mindfulness there. Without the mindfulness, we can't really do too much because we'll get, we'll get lost. We'll get lost in emotions or repetitive thinking, right? So, and of course, we can have mindfulness of strong emotions and repetitive thinking (laughs) because mindfulness of repetitive thinking is not repetitive thinking, right? That's that's what we, we know. So we then want to, how do we, then secondly, uh, we have mindfulness. How do we bring wisdom into our lives? Partly it's to understand that tendency to uh, react and make something difficult worse, right? That teaching of the two arrows, which I give a lot. We want to we have wisdom to know what is true and what is false, you know, in areas where we can know that. You know, we want to really be able to track that, see when people are telling truths, as far as we can tell, see when they're take, telling falsehoods. We want to really be aware of the tendencies to reactivity, you know, to really notice those, uh, the ways in which uh, uh, people have pain and they react. You know, the, you know the, the core of the Four Noble Truths is that typically when there's some way that we don't like what's happening, we become reactive. And everyone becomes reactive. The, you know, all sides in this election had plenty of reactivity. Reactivity means that one, typically that one's heart is closed. One can't have empathy and compassion. And there is plenty of reactivity uh, towards the followers of Mr. Trump. We, again, we saw that with Hillary Clinton at times with the basket of deplorables and so forth, right? And we saw reactivity. Now, one of the things about reactivity is any time we see reactivity, we can know that there's some kind of, we can know there's some kind of pain. You know, one of the things that I've seen much more clearly from doing quite a few years of work with transforming the judgmental mind is that the judgmental mind always comes out of pain. It always does. Whoever we're judging, and whether we're judging Mr. Trump or his followers or or his followers are judging people on the other side, that's coming out of pain that's unacknowledged or unprocessed. And we have practice where we can help process that. And we can do it individually, 
the interactive practices that we did for me were inspired by the work of Joanna Macy, some of you know. And Joanna has developed beautiful group and community practices for going into what's painful. You know, that's, that was part of the design. It was short, but, it, but could you feel how that did that in, I think, a, a gentle way? in a way that kind of eased into things. And there are skillful ways. Let me see if I can find this, this passage from... Um, this is from James Baldwin. It's a quote I really like. He says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Right? So we, we know, and I think people, one of the insights for a lot of people is that the voters who voted for Trump, large, you know, and a lot of people made the analysis that the, the change that led to the election being won was essentially working class whites who voted for Obama four years ago switched to Trump. Right? And that's coming in large part out of a lot of pain. Right? That's really important to know. Our wisdom can help us to know where there's reactivity, there's pain. And that can lead more to compassion and empathy rather than to judgment, even though the reactions can sometimes be quite nasty. Right? And we, you know, we want to act in that way too, but we act in a way that we know what's there, what's there behind it. That's important. Right? That's really important. That helps connect our wisdom ultimately to compassion and to empathy. And I, I was, you know, that can really be a third pillar of our practice. First, mindfulness. The second, wisdom. And the third is really bringing the heart in yet more fully. How do we bring the heart into whatever we do? You know, in the weeks before I went on this trip, I was teaching quite a bit on empathy. I think it's really central even to our times. And it means many different things, but it means can one actually stretch to have one's heart there for people with different views? Again, we can know that there's pain there. Any reactivity in yourself, in your family, in your co-workers, in your political opponents, any reactivity that you notice, and judgmental mind is one of those, it's because there's pain. It's driving it. You know, We have this finding of our approach that when we're truly in our right mind, we're non-reactive and there's love, compassion, and wisdom. right? And we, we've known that at times. And we can know that when we're not in our right mind, so to speak, we're reactive. Right? So that's, we have a reference point for knowing that you know, in ourselves and in others. And so we can develop these heart practices. I think it's a time to really commit to doing more and more of the compassion, the empathy, the loving-kindness practices. And then try it out with people with different views, initially at a distance. Watch the news. Do some... Well, that might not, that's a little more advanced. But you know, do it in your own mind with people for whom there are differences and try to bring the heart there. You know, I think uh, all of us have to stretch, don't we? we're going to be effective, you know, we have to have big hearts, right? We have, to, we have to have more powerful hearts than we have now. We have to develop, right? We have to practice. And then the, the last area connected with the courage is, is action. How do we act? 
What do we do? You know, what are we called, what are we called to do? Uh, Ely Wiesel once said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Right? And so, how do, we, how, do we, how do we come to act? How do we find what calls us? You know, and I, I think I'll just end with a few, a few short comments. Again, I like, uh, I like I'm, two reference points, Joanna Macy and Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman says, remember that, that comment, uh, African-American mystic and social activist. Uh, he was asked near the end of his life uh, by a young man, what should I do? And, and he answered... Um, uh, gave a peculiar answer as an activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs. <laughs> That's unusual, right? He said, but rather ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right? And then Joanna Macy has also, I think, a very helpful framework for understanding how to, how to act. She says, uh, and she talks actually in her own work about the great turning towards a sustainable society. And she also talks about before the great turning develops, there's a great unraveling. She uses that language. And so, but she points to three kinds of actions that help the great turning come into being. One of them is preventing further damage from occurring. It's usually the, usually the province of activists, right? More stopping things for that are causing damage. But then she also says... You have to change the institutions, right? So that could take the shape of changing education, medicine, psychotherapy, um, you know, community agriculture, all these areas, children's books, you know, and so forth, uh, parenting, right? All of these are changing core institutions and, um, you know... Um, Developing a retreat center, right? This is all part of the change. It's not everyone doesn't have to be on the front lines. Right? That's really crucial. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I'm not really acting, but it's really to see where you're called. And then third is shifting consciousness. So I like to think someone who's a yoga teacher is part of this. But the key is to connect the three. That's what I found when I've worked with activists. They often didn't connect the three or people teaching yoga didn't make the connections. So I think you can be grounded where you're really called, where your gifts are, but make the connections between all the levels. That's what I would say is really, really crucial. So let me end with a few quotes. And um, well, I'll just say also, I think action is going to be for each of us, but I think action is also there as a community. I also had the thoughts, maybe like you did as well, what is Spirit Rock's role if there's a crackdown on certain groups of people, right? Whatever, you know, and the prime candidates are Muslims and um, undocumented persons, right? What do, what do people do? You know, I, I think that it's important for Spirit Rock to start having collaboration with other faith groups. It hasn't happened that much. I've been involved some with that, but hasn't happened so much. And might Spirit Rock do what you know um, 
do what is done more in other traditions where there actually are sometimes strong stands. You know, in, in Christianity and Judaism, there is the invocation, love the stranger. You know, for you were once a stranger. So that, that can be a more community-based kind of action. We'll have to see. I want to you know, put that on the horizon. So please just see who I want to end with. Um, maybe three quotes, okay? Three short quotes. Uh, Ken Kraft, who lives uh, in Philadelphia and has written a lot on the intersection of social action and Buddhist practice, he says, we must change the world, we must change ourselves, and we must change ourselves in order to change the world. Ken Kraft... And then Eudora Welty, not a Buddhist practitioner. (laughs) But she said, My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. To part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference. And then uh, the last from Dina Metzger, a short poem called Song. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Thank you. Thank you for your participation in those interactive practices and your attention here. And we have some time for any uh, reflections. And maybe we could even end with another reading or two from the uh, the writing we did. We can, let's use the mic. Any anyone want to speak in any way? Over here. Yeah, I sort of had a question more. I don't know how to moderate my intake of the news. Oh, yeah. It seems to be sort of addictive on one hand, so I feel like I want to just put a moratorium on it. But I don't think that's really a good idea either. Yeah, so how to work with the input. Um, I'll say one or two things. I'm sure... A lot of people, how many have been working with that issue yourself? Okay, so most people. So I would say pay attention to your body and just see if there's that addictive quality there. Maybe don't act on that and see, see whether the body is receptive and open or whether, what your motivation is to go there. And, and that might sometimes say, that's been enough. You know? I found myself uh, doing that some this morning as I was uh, 40 minutes at the San Rafael Richmond Bridge. <laughs> Plenty of opportunities to listen to the news or to KPFA or whatever. And uh, so I think that's, that's the first response. And maybe to, you know, you might, maybe it would be skillful for you to actually clarify this amount is appropriate and actually have a decision on that 
this amount is appropriate from coming from your wisdom. And, you know, I mean, I, I actually, maybe like you, when I was a kid, my parents said, this amount of television is appropriate, and beyond that you shall not go. <laughs> right? And so maybe something like that, just to see what your wisdom says. So it's maybe, okay, you know, maybe half hour is enough, or, you know, or maybe you get it from one source, you say, okay, whatever, whatever your source is. You know, maybe it's a newspaper or uh, radio or something. Yeah, that, those are some starters. Yeah, please. I, I've been dealing with um, the information overload, not just that, but also the emotional overload. Yeah. That um, emotions have been running high. I was at the Dakota Pipeline protest in San Rafael. And even on the left, there's a lot of emotions and a lot of dissent yeah. within the left. And, um, and I get unbalanced. Yeah. I get ungrounded. And yeah. I get... And I sometimes... I feel like I'm the target and I take it personally or people take take the political personally. So I've been um, relying on practice a lot That's just right, to yeah. break it up, break up the uh, in, in the massive input. Yeah, yeah. I think the practice is often said in the, the old text, it's a protection. And yeah, and we, you know, we, we will find among people who may agree with us politically, they can be very reactive as well, you know, and very judgmental. And, you know, you may find if you're a voice for empathy, you know, as we saw when we were looking at empathy, remember we had that incident where, I don't know if you call it an incident, but someone who come, comes pretty regularly here reported finding a piece on Mr. Trump, this was before the election, that showed considerable empathy towards him and showing it to her fellow quote-unquote progressives who kind of tore her apart for doing that, right? So there's... um, And we talked about how that was giving them overly advanced practice and they should work up to it. (laughs) You know. Uh, But, but yeah, it's, it's hard. So it really calls for being centered. And if we put ourselves in this, I think, you know, it's, it's like uh, it's, it's a steep learning curve, right? We'll be in this and we'll often feel imbalanced, but it's like a little bit like a retreat. You keep going, right? And you, and you get guidance and you take breaks and so forth. So sounds like you were doing that. But again, listen to the body, listen to what's there, have people you can talk with who share the perspective, that and the, the sangha community, you know? you know. Again, a concept I learned from... Uh, Joanna Macy, she has the notion of the importance of having uh, small networks of people or groups of people, what she called rough weather networks, you know, just to stay connected, you know, because I think isolation is the um, hardest thing right now. Yeah. Anyone else have a suggestion for working with the media? or amount of media? Anyone have something that's worked for you on that? Yeah, please. For me, I'm just very aware... I'm sorry. For me, I'm very aware of um, which media I choose. That seems to be very important to me. I don't watch any television news whatsoever because I know that floods me. Yeah. But I can read. Yeah. Um, And I choose what I read. Yeah. 
So that's um, that's great. That's yeah, being helpful. being selective both about the source and about the type of medium. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe especially one, at night. Especially at night. Never before bedtime. Yeah, yeah. Be careful. <laughs> that's a good guideline. I I personally use a guideline of no, a boundary. Hopefully, no electronic media after 9 p.m. You know, with kind of generally go to sleep 10 or 10:30, so like an hour or two of without electronic media that will affect the sleep a lot if you do it right before. Uh, maybe one more before we finish up. Anyone else wanted to share? Yeah, okay, uh, Sylvia. I found <clears throat> the night before the election. I didn't like how things were going, and my husband was just furious. So I had to uh, find my quiet place and went into my office where I have a bed. And I continued to watch the TV, and then I turned it off feeling a lot of angst. When I woke up, I turned the TV back on, and then I was devastated, Mm. angry, confused. And I I felt as if someone had died. And... I felt that way for a whole day, so I had to go back to nature mm. and do that walking exercise you taught us. Yeah. And just walk amongst nature and breathe it and live it. and That settled me. And then I, when I went home, I just refused to t- turn the television on to news. Yeah. And I feel like come January, uh, when he gets inaugurated, then I will deal with what I have to do and in talking with someone here, I I think the thoughts, but I don't put it into practice. Yeah. And I'm thinking now that I can't just be a voice. I need to be a part of something that believes the way I do yeah. and try to make a difference. Something bigger, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's, let's finish with, uh, would anyone like to read yours uh, as our sort of closing? Read your, your writing that you did to close? I have some good quotes to finish if no one volunteered. Anyone like to? Okay, that's a little bit. Uh, as I said, I realized, oh, okay, there's a little bit of pressure. So let me see what I have. This is. Uh, Okay, maybe two quotes, both from Western traditions. The first is from the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud. There's a story of Rabbi Hillel, who lived around the time of Jesus. A pagan came to him saying that he would convert to Judaism if Hillel could teach him the whole of the Torah in the time he could stand on one foot. Rabbi Hillel replied in one sentence, What is hateful to yourself, do not do to your fellow humans. That is the whole Torah. The rest is just commentary. Go and study it. What is hateful, do not do to your fellow humans. And then from Dorothy Day, uh, a founder of Catholic Worker, kind of a spiritual activist as well, 
She said, the greatest challenge of our time is how to bring about a revolution of the heart. You will know your vocation by the joy it brings you. You will know. You will know when it's right. Don't worry about being effective. Just concentrate on being faithful to the truth. So we, in closing, offer the uh, benefits of our time here to all beings without exception, knowing that we are part of all beings. So the benefits are for us as well and for all those in our lives. So thank you for welcoming me back to Spirit Rock. And good to be here and uh, to be continued. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.